uh, that reading dramatically read for us uh, by Helen a few minutes ago. First thing I want you to note is um, how often things of significance take place by a mountain or on a mountain. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. And what is Matthew trying to tell you and Jesus trying to tell you by being on a mountain? This is the new Moses, this is the new law, because in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, on another mountain, the law is given. And all the way through the Old Testament, the mountainside is the place where God makes clear, declares certain truths. And in the New Testament too, the Mount of Olives, the Great Commission, just as Jesus is about to be ascended, mountains, God statements to humankind. Uh, and here, right in the book of Kings, uh, from one of the great prophets of Israel, certainly respected by Jesus and the apostles as a great figure, here is Elijah on two mountains. The first, Mount Carmel, with that violent, vibrant story of fervent prayer and God answering by fire. And then on a second mountain, almost before you've drawn breath, on Horeb or Mount Sinai, the quieter story of a rather muted, depressed Elijah. And God's response by a still, small voice. Uh, I want to focus today on the question that's asked twice in that passage uh, in Kings. What are you doing here? And you can say it in different ways. To a child found where the child ought not to be, what are you doing here? Or in surprise, as an unexpected but very welcome guest knocks on the door, what are you doing here? Or to your teenagers and their friends as you arrive home early and unexpected, what are you doing here? Or like a sympathetic doctor as you go apprehensively into the surgery, now what are you doing here? And now, before too many of you, at just past midday, begin to ask yourself, he's right, you know, what am I doing here and uh, disappear? Let me get round to the point. I want to suggest some possible answers to the question. Perhaps some of us are here because we need to face the challenging question that Elijah addressed all the Israelites and followers of Baal on Mount Carmel. How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that the meaning how long will you sit aside two opinions is really a sort of old-fashioned way of saying how long will you sit on the fence? Swaying this way and that. You know, that spiritual schizophrenia that affects so many of us where we live in two lives. When we're here and we're among this people and we're doing our devotions and when we feel a bit pious, then we're one person. But in other environments, surrounded by other people in different circumstances, we can be quite another person. Chameleon Christianity. 
And many of us confess silently to ourselves that we waver and our life is actually a result of our lives and our lips not wholly agreeing. Who are we depends where we are, when it is, and who we're with. We profess faith, but the practice is inconsistent and sometimes quite different. And God says to us, as Elijah presents with that vivid example of the truth of the God of Israel, how long are you going to not make up your mind? And God says to us today, how long are you going to sit on the fence? When are you going to decide that God is God and if God is God, and if God in Christ is your God, then effectively that's the most important thing about life. How long will you put off nailing your colors to the mast? Our country at the moment is replete, almost in turmoil, because of the different numbers of people and areas in which we're having to choose one person above another, one outcome above another, one leader of this above another. How long will it be before we make the next, more serious than ever before, simple but profound statement? If God is God, then what else can I do but to follow and come off the fence? Holy. You see, he's not asking for your service Workaholic Methodists are good at service. Thank goodness they are. He's asking for yourselves. He's not asking for lip service. He's asking for our lives. What are you doing here? And is it time to come off the fence and say, this God, this faith, holy what are you doing here? Well, perhaps some of us are seeking God's experience or a new and fresh experience of God in God's presence and God's power. At Carmel, Elijah experiences God as everybody round about him does with power through fire. Some of us know in our lives that we need a Carmel experience. A clear, visible demonstration that God is entering into our lives, cleansing, refining, unmistakable, a sign, a miracle, because without that, nothing else will do. And we could bear testimony that from time to time, God has acted in that clear, irrevocable, powerful way in our own lives. And sometimes I'm privileged to hear your stories where you tell me that. And then at Horeb, Sinai, Elijah experiences God not through the fire, not through the earthquake, not through all those physical demonstrations of huge power, but in a still whispering voice. And some of us say, well, 
clear, unmistakable signs would be wonderful, but actually, the comfort and the challenge through a still voice that goes right to the heart of our souls, that's what we need this morning. When I want to curl up and die, when I'm not quite clear what this week brings, when I'm not quite sure whether or not going on living is worth it, all the things that Elijah experiences in that small cave. I want you to note this, that whether it's the fire coming down upon a sodden altar, or it's the still small voice after the earthquake, it's the same God who met Elijah on two mountains. There are many ways, you see, in which God deals powerfully and deeply with us. Christianity is never off the peg. It's always tailor-made for you, even though there's necessarily only one tailor. Some experiences we have are tangibly spectacular, and others are definitely silent. But they're both God's power. And I want you to note this too. That God deeply understands Elijah's different needs on two different mountains. Imagine if it wasn't the case. On Carmel... Oh, I'm not sending fire, Elijah, no. But I will whisper quietly to you in your ear as these 450 priests of Baal tear you limb from limb. Or on Horeb. I'm not sending peace and assurance, Elijah. I know, I know you're depressed and suicidal. Put on your sunglasses and stand back. I'm sending fire. You see, God knows and God knows best how to meet us and how to be mediated to us. And note this too, that just as God answered Elijah's prayers so decisively, so powerfully, so clearly on Carmel, on Horeb, God seems to ignore Elijah's prayer altogether. I've had enough, Lord. Let me die. And he lays down to die. And the next thing he knows, an angel is patting him on the shoulder and says, wake up. You can almost imagine Elijah sort of looking around and saying, hallelujah, I'm in heaven. And then suddenly thinking, no, I'm not. I'm not answering your prayer, Elijah. It's a silly prayer. You don't need death, you need a rest. Now eat this. You've got a long journey ahead. God knows best and answers accordingly and sometimes doesn't take us too seriously because God knows best. Which brings me to the third possible answer to the question, what are you doing here? Possibly to be challenged to trust God more. Just look at the trust that Elijah exercises in God. He almost, not quite, but he almost borders into that kind of activity where you hear Jesus saying, as he said to the devil, do not put your God to the test. 
And it's almost like Elijah saying, well, that's normally good, but just watch this. Pour more water on. What great trust some of these Old Testament figures had. Moses already mentioned him. How would the history of saving faith be if Moses had taken all the people out of Egypt, wended their way to the end of the Red Sea, looks at the waves east and west, lifts his stick and thinks just for a split second, I'm going to look a real wally if nothing happens here. So he lowers his stick, turns round to the people of Israel and says, we better go back. When was the last time that we placed ourselves in a situation where if God had not acted, we would just have appeared an absolute fool? I'm not talking about testing God for the sake of it, I will stand in the middle of the M25 and expect God to save me from every piece of oncoming traffic. I'm not talking about forcing God's hand. I'm talking about the holy risks of discipleship. That if God is God and you've nailed your colors to the mast, that God says to you, I want you to do this. No, that's silly, God. I've got no money. I want you to do this. No, that's, I've got no time. I want you to do this. Jesus invites us to follow him in discipleship, not set up camp on the edge of the kingdom. I remember a long, long time ago when I was a minister in West Yorkshire, our boys were small and we took them swimming on a Friday evening. You know, these courses, 10-week courses. Fortunately, they all learned to swim, but my abiding memory is of a young lad called Wasim. And he was almost blind. And the passing out of this young lads and girls uh, course on swimming was not only that you got across, I think we've still got the badges, 15 meters. You got across the pool, but you jumped in from the two-meter board. Which doesn't sound a lot, it's about me. And everybody in the class had done it by the end of the last meeting except Wasim this little blind Asian lad. And so, of course, they all encourage him, and he stands there on this board, jump, Wazim, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then he said this, is there water there? Yes, they all say, splashing around in the pool, you can hear it. No, I can't, I can't, I can't. And the young man who had taken the class for 10 weeks walked out onto the edge of the board and he said, I'll go in first and jumped off the board, making the biggest splash that we could find. There's water down here, Wazim, he said, and so am I. Now jump. And he does, and he appears absolutely radiant. I've done it, he says. And if you'll pardon the pun, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Which leads to the fourth possible answer to the question, what are you doing here? 
Are you here to be found by a God who seeks and loves us? You see, some of us go through periods in our lives where we long after God. It's a great season of the soul to be in. But the longing of humankind to find God is far exceeded by the longing of God to find humankind. To draw people to God's self. And he's been doing that since the beginning of time, but in the Christian tradition, supremely in Jesus Christ. In one sense, the whole history of religion, I mean religion with a capital R, is a game of hide-and-seek. Some gods hide, and in order to receive salvation, you have to seek them. You have to get the right incantations. You have to find the right words of revelation. You have to submit your body to the right kinds of pummeling or esoteric activities. And then when you've done all that and demonstrated that you're absolutely serious about this, you might glimpse a God who ultimately hides himself. But our God, the God of Abraham and Moses and Elijah, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't a God like that. But rather a God who seeks for humankind, even though they often hide from him. Somewhere in Otley, in West Yorkshire, where I was raised, in the foundations of what must be now what? a 55-year-old detached house, there is a pair of children's Wellington boots. Because little boys love trudging through mud, deep, deep mud, and the deeper mud, the better, in the foundations of a house being built. And they sometimes get so deep stuck in the mud that they can't move either left foot nor right foot, and then they do the only thing that little boys stuck in mud do. Mom! Which is why. Somewhere in Otley in West Yorkshire, in the foundations of what is now a 55-year-old detached house, near to a pair of Charles Wellingtons, there will be a pair of size 6 women's Marks and Spencer slippers. They belong to a mother who, at the sound of a crying and rescued six-year-old, comes wading into the mud, plop, 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 extracts him like a cork from a bottle, leaving the debris of Wellingtons on the floor and leaving her own slippers behind. Because when you're really stuck in the mud, it's no good trying to pull yourself out by your own shoelaces to mix metaphors. When you're really stuck in the mud, someone's got to come and rescue you. And the thing is that when you do cry for help, whether you're on a mountainside or you're in your home or you're even in this church this morning, when you do cry for help and you want to be found and rescued, there's a God who is seeking out, seeking you out and desiring to rescue you. And if God is searching and you want to be found, 
then something wonderful happens. What are you doing here this morning? Amen.